I invite you to take a Bible, if you will, and uh, turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. It's page 299 uh, in these Bibles in the pews as we continue a study in the life of Elijah. If you've not been here the past few weeks, this is the fourth sermon in that uh, series. And just to give you a little bit of background, the uh, God's people, the nation of Israel, is about the ninth century B.C., so uh, it gives you an idea of where we are in history. And they had divided into two nations. You had a northern kingdom and southern kingdom. North was called Israel. The south was called Judah. And uh, Elijah is a prophet who is sent to the king of the north, whose name is Ahab. And Ahab has been described in the chapters leading up to chapter 18 as exceeding all of the kings and his fathers who'd come before him in the area of wickedness. He had uh, he promoted idolatry among God's people. Uh, he, he married uh, a woman named Jezebel. It was a diplomatic marriage. She was from an idol-worshiping country to the north called Phoenicia, and her father and uh, Ahab's father had agreed on this marriage so that it would seal a diplomatic agreement that they had. And, and so when she showed up, uh, she brought with her uh, 850 uh, prophets of uh, Baal, the god of weather, the, the, the god of rain, and Asherah, the queen goddess. Uh, she had brought those uh, with her as part of her entourage. Uh, so spiritually, it's a very, very bad time. In chapter 17, Elijah had showed up and uh, just told Ahab there would be no rain except by his word. And uh, this now three years have passed, basically three and a half years since there had been any rain, but it's been three years since Elijah and Ahab have met face to face. And so we have this encounter beginning in verse 1 of chapter 18. Hear God's word. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your lord. Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, how, how have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, Go, tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, I your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts live, before whom I stand, I will surely 
show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So ends the reading of God's holy word. The worst drought that's ever occurred in U.S. history occurred during the 1930s. Uh, it's referred back to as the American Dust Bowl. And the drought was focused on a 150,000 square mile area in the Midwest. It encompassed Oklahoma, the Texas Panhandles, and then the neighboring states, sections of Kansas, Colorado, and New Mexico. And it was really brought about uh, unintentionally because of farmers and ranchers in the late 1800s and early 1900s, they aggressively uh, used the land and set up the region for what would become an ecological disaster. <clears throat> Most early settlers used the land for livestock grazing, and then with the introduction of machines for agriculture, <clears throat> combined with high prices for grain during World War I, that enticed the farmers to plow up millions of acres of natural grass cover in order to plant wheat. And then the combination of little rainfall, light soil, and high winds came together and it caused an ecological natural disaster. What happened is that when this drought struck from 1934 to 1937, the soil no longer was anchored to the grass roots, so the winds easily picked up the loose topsoil, swirled it into these dense dust clouds called black blizzards, and these dust clouds as they recurred, they wreaked havoc. They choked cattle and pasture land. Sixty percent of the population of the Midwest moved during that time. Ten percent went to California. <clears throat> now, the drought in Elijah's day was not as long as what happened there in the Midwest, but it was worse because you could not get into a car and re relocate to some desirable place like Alabama or Georgia. So this drought and the famine it brought lasted three years, but it was deadly. And F.B. Meyer, the old Bible commentator, imagines a scene like this in those days. The music of the brooks was still. No green pastures carpeted the hills. There was neither blossom on the fig tree nor fruit on the vines, and the labor of the olive failed. The ground was chapped and barren, and probably the roads in the neighborhoods of the villages and towns were dotted by the stiffened corpses of the abject poor who had succumbed to the severity of the situation. It would have been a horrible scene. And so the king of Israel and the people of Israel at this time had put their trust in Baal, who was, as I mentioned, the god of rain, the god of weather. But Baal could not help them now and had not helped them. And so chapter 18 begins with the same phrase that has been repeated over and over and over, and it's the main phrase of the ministry of Elijah, and that is, the word of the Lord came. Elijah's just a messenger. The emphasis really is not on him, it's on the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord comes and tells him, now it's time to show himself to Ahab. It's been three years since their last meeting. 
And then one of the understatements in the scripture in verse 2, the famine was severe in Samaria. It was a, it was a uh, fatal situation. And so now the camera shifts to Ahab, and we're introduced to a man named Obadiah. It's the first time his name's mentioned here in 1 Kings. And there are many Obadiahs, some 13 in the Old Testament. This is not the one who wrote the book by the same name. This Obadiah uh, gets mixed reviews. I have about 12 or 14 commentaries, Bible study books on the, on the book of 1 Kings. And I've never met a biblical character that gets such diverse opinions and evaluations. A number of the writers say that he was a compromiser, he is contrasted with Elijah, and that he's serving in this evil king's court. And when he expresses his fear about being killed, if he takes the word back to Ahab that he's seen Elijah, uh, that that shows how fearful he was, that he didn't really fear God. On the other hand, many of the other writers... Uh, say, no, he is a stellar example of faith. It says he feared the Lord from the time he was young. His action of hiding these prophets of the Lord from Jezebel when she went on a tirade to, to wipe them out, and he hides a hundred of them and feeds them and sends water to them, that he risked his life to do that. And so he's an example of a secular saint, of a believer living shrewdly in the court of an evil king. I tend to lean toward the latter. Uh, I think he's just in a very difficult position in trying to serve the Lord there. But what do we know about him? Verse 3 notes that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. He was not just a nominal believer, what we would call today a nominal Christian. He was truly godly and he was devout and he was committed. Second, he held a very important political post. It says in verse 3, he was over the household. In other, he was over, in other words, he was over the king's court. He was the king's chief of staff. And Ahab was an evil man. But Obadiah apparently did not use that as an excuse to do substandard work. We can assume that he must have been a man of integrity. He must have been a man of qualifications and he could be trusted. And that's why Ahab had chosen him to be head of the household. And so in verses 5 and 6, Ahab and Obadiah are on a mission. They're on a mission to find food and water for the people? No, for the animals. Ahab doesn't seem too concerned about the people, but he's concerned about his horses and mules. So I see Obadiah as a faithful servant to his master, a loyal subject who realized that the king's authority was ordained by God, as it says in Romans 13, to let every person be subject to the governing authorities. God has called some of you right now in a position like that. You serve with unbelievers. And you serve in a secular job. Most of you are called to secular, that is, unchurch-related uh, professions and jobs and callings and careers. Uh, that it's the minority of us that are the the preachers and the missionaries and, and and are serving God in a vocational capacity, you might say. And so there's great application here about being loyal and diligent and respectful as long as you are not asked to do something that's clearly sinful. We see Obadiah's courage. That's the second thing I want you to note about him. He reminds 
Elijah of how he had uh, saved the lives of a hundred prophets. I told you that when Queen Jezebel showed up there at the at the palace, so to speak, there in Israel, that she brought with her all these prophets of these strange gods. And then, so much for tolerance, she decides to wipe out the prophets of Yahweh. And he saves them. Obadiah saves them. He's kind of an Old Testament Oscar Schindler. And he hides them away and he provides food and water for them. Now, I want to I make a point here that, yeah, and you can stare at your Bible. It's not there, but I think I can draw it from the text. When you're faced with a moral dilemma in the workplace, and some of you are, and some of you will be this week, some of you will in the future, or even as a student or in your profession, perhaps you're asked to lie, perhaps you're asked to cut corners at the expense of the customer, perhaps you're in some kind of firm where you're violating some kind of codes that you know uh, you are being asked to violate, in other words. As a Christian, your obligation is to God in that situation. You're to obey God rather than men. And of course, we try to think of creative alternatives. If it's not a case of clear right and wrong, but you feel uneasy about it, you feel your conscience is not clear, but you can't chapter and verse to say this is sinful, then pray about it and seek God's word and talk to trusted Christian friends for their counsel about what you should do. And Obadiah ultimately did the right thing. And he took a hundred prophets and he hid them in caves, probably near Mount Carmel, where there are hundreds of camels. And so we see an important lesson here, how the Lord typically works. Are we okay? All right, like that. Everybody's looking over there. All right, everybody's all right. Um, Where was I? Everybody's okay but me. I forgot what I was talking about. Obadiah did the right thing. He took a hundred prophets. He hid them in the caves. But some of you are in situations in where you'll be asked to do something and you have to, you have to quit your job. And that's just the reality of it. It's told of a young man who worked uh, in a large city and he worked for a company and the boss said after work it was very important for them that, that uh, they were going to take some of their clients to a gentleman's club. And this Christian young man said, I, I can't go. They got to the place, and he said, I can't go in there. And the boss looked at him and said, it's very, very important to me that you go in there with us. We're here to entertain these, these clients. He said, I can't go in. He said, it's very important that you go in here with us. And he said, I cannot go in there because if I do, I'll be violating my marriage vows. He was ready to lose his job, which best I know he did over that. But God will find that young man another job. But there comes a point. But it had not come for Obadiah. It had not reached the point to where he had said, I have to leave. And so he proved himself faithful. But when Elijah says, tell Ahab that I am here, uh, he, he's fearful. It, it doesn't seem to go in, it, it doesn't seem to fit with the fact that he wasn't afraid to hide the prophets, or at least he was not afraid enough not to do it. And so he says, have I sinned? Have I done something wrong? Same thing the widow had asked. What is my sin, basically, that you're going to cause me to lose my life? If I go back, we have searched every nation. Ahab has sent everywhere, every nation, every surrounding nation. And when he said, is Elijah here? And they said, no. Then he bound them by an oath to say, if he shows up, you're bound to tell me. 
and we've gone everywhere, and now I come over the hill looking for grass and water, and here you are, and I'm going to go back and say, guess who I ran across? Right over there is Elijah. Ahab's going to think, you've been conspiring against me. You knew he was here. And he had seen how Ahab dealt with his enemies. And then he's, then he's got a question about God's sovereignty. On the other hand, Elijah, I don't know what God may do. His spirit may lead you away, and we'll come back, and you aren't here. And then he'll say, you're lying to me. And then I'll lose my life. Well, Ahab says, that won't happen. At the end of the day, Obadiah obeys. In verse 16, it said, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. He had enough courage to do what the Lord commanded. And finally, the king and Elijah have their long-awaited face-to-face meeting in verse 17. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture. Not that all of them aren't wonderful, but this one, I, I wish... I wish I knew the tone of voice that Elijah used. We have the words, but we don't have the inflection. And so when Ahab sees him and says, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Literally, are you, is it you, the one who's brought a curse on Israel? Ahab is accusing Elijah of treason. He's saying, This is your fault. You have done all. Look around. Look around, Elijah. This is your fault. Philip Ryken says, Ahab's accusation is a sober warning about what happens to God's people in days of judgment. First, the world will shut its ears to God's word. Then it will point an accusatory finger at God's people. When trouble comes, the people of this world do not turn back to God, but turn against him and his people. The history... Biblical history, church history is filled with this. When Paul preached the gospel, he was hauled up before Governor Felix, and they said, we have found this man a plague. He calls Paul a plague. We have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. In the first century church, Christians are wrongfully charged with practicing incest because they referred to one another as Christian brothers and sisters. They were accused of cannibalism because they would eat and drink of the Lord's body and blood in the Lord's Supper. Under Nero, the Christians were blamed for burning Rome and summarily executed. No one was more falsely accused than Jesus. When he's brought before Pontius Pilate, his accuser said, we found this man misleading our nation. Talk about a stretch. Talk about exaggeration. We found this man misleading our nation. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea. And so what we see is the preaching of the gospel then and now when the message of faith in Christ and repentance toward God goes out, some people believe, some people accept it, and the rule of Christ brings peace in our hearts, and other people get more hostile toward it and toward his followers. And we should not be surprised when that happens. And so that's what Christ warned us about. He promised us in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Listen, I know you. I know me. As a southerner, we try to finesse everything. We try to take the edge off of it. We try to avoid conflict. Most of us, most of us, don't like to get into arguments and so forth. But there comes a point, you can only finesse it so much. And there's only so much you can do um, in your indirectness to try to avoid what's coming, and that's going to be the hostility that someone's going to show. You believe that? 
You believe that Christ is the only way to God? Do you realize the implications of that? Yes. Um, who is the real troublemaker? Here's where I wish I had the inflection. It's verse 18 when Elijah answers him and says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. The reality is the king who's brought this famine on the land. God had promised back in Deuteronomy 18 that if his people turned away from him to idols, he would bring famine. Ahab should have known that. He's the one that's led them in that direction. Elijah was not interested in public opinions or special interest groups. He was not a politician. He was a prophet. And rarely do those things go hand in hand together. A prophet is a proclaimer of truth. That's what the word means. It's not necessarily a foreseer of the future. It's a proclaimer of truth. That was not an insult toward politicians. It's just those things. Typically, prophets don't run for office. Typically, prophets weren't invited to show up in the Old Testament. And for sure, they weren't invited back a second time once they did show up. So he's a prophet. That simply meant he spoke the word of God. If it was politically incorrect, he said it. If it was unpopular, Elijah said it. If it was offensive, he said it. In the old days, we said Elijah had guts. So did Peter Cartwright. Do you know that name? Peter Cartwright was a circuit-riding Methodist preacher back in the 1800s. On one occasion, he was getting ready to preach at a very large congregation when he was told that present that day in the congregation would be the sitting president, Andrew Jackson. He would be among the listeners. And his friends, who knew how direct and unrestrained Mr. Cartwright was, asked him to make sure that his remarks were positive and unoffensive. As he preached that night, somewhere in that sermon, he said, I have been told tonight that Andrew Jackson is in the congregation, and I have been asked to guard my remarks. What I must say is that Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he doesn't repent of his sins. The congregation was aghast, yet after the service, President Jackson made his way up to him, extended his hand to shake it, and said, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could whip the world. The courage, that was his point, not to defer to any person, regardless of rank, that we all have the same needs. Elijah accuses Ahab, and he accuses him of two things, what we would call sins of omission and sins of commission. He had omitted the commandments of God. He had committed the worship of a false god, Baal. Ahab had sinned in both ways. He had abandoned the commandments of the Lord and he had followed the Baals. What should Ahab have done? What should have been happening? I was asked a question years ago by, uh, he used to preach at the church where I was. He's an author, Larry Crabb, Dr. Larry Crabb. And he would always ask, Chip, what is repentance in this situation? In, in your situation, what would repentance look like? What would repentance have looked like for Ahab? The word repent means to have a change of mind. It's not a trite thing like I think I'll have combo number three. You know, make that combo number four, change my mind. It, it's, it's a change so radical that it brings a change even in your thinking, in your thought patterns, to what you think is true and not true and real and not real. That's repentance, and it 
displays itself in our outward action. And so what would repentance have looked like? He should have been asking God for mercy. He should have humbled himself. And there was God's man delivering the word of God that he could have said, Elijah, what can I do? He should have been asking God to turn away his wrath. He should have been interceding on behalf of his people. Instead, what does he do? He, he justifies himself by blaming the messenger. His main concern is the animals, not even the people. The truth is, unless God works, most of us will never deal honestly with our sins. We hold on to them. We hide them. We hide them. We hide them. We will ignore. We will focus on other issues. We will bl blame somebody else. We will blame our circumstances. And yet Jesus did the opposite. Here was the innocent one who took the sins of others on himself in order to save others. Ahab, sadly, I'll go ahead and jump ahead. I'm going I'm to spoil it for you. He never repents. We'll get to the rest of the story, Lord willing, uh, over the next several weeks. Um, but he receives the grace of God over and over and over, and yet he never repents. But he also didn't realize that no one has gone too far. No one. Wherever you are today, your age, you may think, hey, Chip, I'm, uh, I'm 80 years old. I, I can't change. This is just who I am. This is the way I think. And I, I won't know what the truth is until I die, and I guess I'll figure it out then. It's never too late. You're never too far gone. There's a great book by Ruth Tucker called Stories of Faith different people through history, and Ruth Tucker's an excellent historian, writes well. And she tells about David Flood. You ever heard of David Flood? I mentioned him some time back. David Flood was from Sweden. He committed his life to Jesus Christ in his youth. He married a young woman who shared his commitment to Christ. Her name was Sevilla. And to jump ahead, they felt called to serve the Lord in an area of the world where no one had heard the gospel. So they ended up in the 1920s going to Africa. And they went to Africa to reach people as missionaries that had never heard. And that was the whole desire of their heart, was to see people come to Christ. And yet it, the work was hard. The conditions were horrible. The people were hostile. They were unresponsive. Uh, David and Sevilla's lives were constantly in danger. They had two children in those conditions while they were there. Shortly after the second child was born, Sevilla dies. So there, David Flood is there by himself with his two children. He's consumed by doubts and discouragement, and he's devastated. All he had to show for this severe cost of his family, the time, the effort, now the death of his wife, was one convert, a young boy. And he felt he had sacrificed the best years of their lives and his wife for what? For one kid. And he concluded he'd been a fool. So under a cloud of guilt and despair and defeat and failure, he left Africa. He took his young son with him, but he had to leave his infant daughter there in the care of another missionary couple because the infant was, was sick, too ill to travel. Later, that missionary couple died. The little girl was passed on to another missionary couple who brought her here to the United States. In the meantime, David, who was living in Sweden, turned his back on his faith. He married a second time. That dissolved. He began living with a woman who wasn't his wife. He thought little 
of his daughter whom he not seen since she was an infant. However, his daughter here in the U.S. named Aggie thought often about him. As she grew, she learned about the work which he and his mother had begun in Africa. She desperately wanted to talk with him about it. As she grew, she, she married, and together with her husband, as they lived here in America, in her heart, she yearned and wanted to find her father. So after many years, she's able to arrange a trip to Sweden. She finds her father, who's then very sick. He's 73 years old. He's bedridden. He's living in a shabby apartment. She goes to him, tells him she loves him, tells him God loves him. And then she told him what she'd learned about that ministry in Africa, that that one young boy, that one convert, had grown up to be a gifted teacher and preacher of the gospel. That one little boy eventually led many, perhaps thousands of others, to Christ and helped establish the church of Christ in that part of Africa. And upon hearing what God had done, David flood. Rather than remaining hard toward God, he threw himself on God's mercy. He asked God to forgive him for his rebellion, for his wasted years, and God did. David Flood did not know that he just had six months to live, but during those six months, there was productivity, there was the restoring of broken relationships. So after nearly 40 years of falling on his face, 40 years of rebellion, of turning his back on God, David Flood got up and repented, and he was restored. There's a verse in Second Chronicles, and maybe you've never heard it. It says in Second Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Is your heart completely his? You can give yourself fully to him without fear. You can give yourself fully to him without insecurity and mistrust. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the God who restores. And we thank you for the fact that you put people in places we would not expect that can be used in your providence to care for others. And we pray that our hearts would be full of yours through faith in Christ, him and him only. We have our idols. Perhaps they aren't the God of weather, but it's ourselves or our insecurities or the approval of other people or to achieve a certain level of expertise in some arena. We pray that we'd cast those before your feet and worship you and you only. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.